0: Hello, Aiden here with a little bit of an update before we get into today's podcast. Uh, we have changed our podcast music, and the reason for that is because we accidentally use the same music that Holly Baxter and Lane Norton do in their podcast, The Beauty and the Geek. Um, I had previously listened to Lane's old podcast, Physique Science Radio but I hadn't listened to their new podcast until one of my followers on Instagram let me know that it was the same music. Um, I have now listened to their podcast, can vouch for it, great podcast, but it is the same music as what we've been using. We had just purchased the music from one of those websites that allows you to purchase rights, so we got the non-exclusive rights to it, and I assumed they did the same thing, but obviously they did it first. So, bit of a mistake on our behalf, bit of an accident, so we have now updated our music to be something new and hopefully you guys all like it if not please let me know but apart from that i hope you enjoyed today's show
1: welcome this is the ideal nutrition podcast this is episode six now I'm Leah Heigel and I'm here with my co-host Ada Muir and today we're going to be touching on eight underrated nutrition tips.
0: So my first tip that I think is underrated is that sugar doesn't really impact body composition noticeably differently to other forms of carbohydrate. I think that's underrated because it gives you a lot of flexibility. And obviously it is a little bit more nuanced than that. Like I think under most circumstances, we should be trying to limit our added sugar intake and stuff like that. I think that's a good message. But I think having understanding that doesn't really impact that much differently whether you gain muscle or lose fat or any of those variables in comparison to other forms of carbohydrate or even actually other forms of fat as well um, outside of extreme circumstances, it, it makes it easier. It makes it more flexible. And one of the most quoted studies on this topic to kind of really show this point is there's a study by, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Sawit et al., um, 1997, and they compared a diet containing 43% of total calories from sugar versus one that only had 4% of total calories coming from sugar. They had their total calories matched, they had their total macros matched, the same amount of protein, fat, and carbohydrate and they were in a calorie deficit. And at the end of the study, both groups lost pretty much exactly the same amount of fat and maintained the same amount of muscle. There was no difference on body composition. And that's not to say they have the exact same impact on body composition, but the fact that you can look at a study like that where there's 43% (laughs) coming from sugar versus 4%, and there was almost no difference, I think that is a really underrated thing to be aware of because a lot of people are stressing about tiny amounts of added sugar and stuff like that, like, As an example, I don't know about you, Leah, but like I make meal plans where I have pretty much no added sugar at all added. And sometimes I'll add one thing that has like seven grams of added sugar and clients will like freak out about that. They're like, I can't have that. Yeah.
1: Classic example for me is I'm a big fan of Nutrigrain as like a pre-training snack. But I think a lot of people see the added sugar in that and go, oh, you know, that's not a healthy food.
0: Yeah. And it, it explains a lot of things why some people can still get lean so easily while having a lot of sugar and stuff like that. Like, because it, it doesn't really make a difference. Like there's obviously so much more nuance in terms of like, if you eat more sugar, it's obviously easier to eat more calories or alternatively, if you have a ton of added sugar, you're probably not getting as many micronutrients in. But the whole point of this is basically just being like, if you're aware that the impact on body composition isn't really that different, you don't have to stress over little amounts. Like there's no reason you couldn't just have say less brown rice for dinner and a tiny bit of added sugar earlier in the day and still get the exact same outcomes versus stressing about going off plan or anything like that.
1: So my first tip is just kind of meal planning in general. I think no matter what your goal is, this should really underpin your nutrition approach. Um, because if you don't plan anything, it's going to be really hard to go through with, with whatever your goal might be and actually get there. Um, and I don't mean meal planning in kind of this bro style way of doing it, like doing your all your meal prep on a Sunday. I don't feel you have to do it that way. It just taking a bit of time out of your week to do some kind of meal planning can make a huge, huge difference. So when I work with clients personally... I tend to take even like a full session for meal planning and just really kind of strategizing the kind of meal planning that works for that individual person. Do you do that much with your clients?
0: To a certain degree. And I think an overall philosophy of mine is that like, it makes sense to just plan things out, like taking a second to think it through. Sometimes that's part of why I think some of my clients get good results. Even if they're intelligent people, they understand nutrition, all those kind of things. It's literally just blocking out the entire consult with me to actually plan stuff out, put something together and then follow it. And another thing like that kind of ties into this, but like I think delayed gratification ties in with a lot of this in terms of if you don't have a plan, there's a lot of short-term thinking that goes on. Planning doesn't really give you any benefits in the short term, but it sets you up for longer term stuff.
1: Yeah, 100%. And like something I see a lot is people will kind of plan – even like a day or two in advance and they'll do really well for that like Monday, Tuesday of the week. And then as the week progresses, it becomes less planned. And then getting to the weekend, even so like most people don't have a plan whatsoever for a weekend, even when they're only planning to eat out once over the weekend, it can end up being, you know, five or six times um, on like the worst case scenario because they just haven't planned to eat past Friday, really. Like they just haven't planned it. So they don't know what they'll be cooking for lunches, what they'll be having for snacks. So in general, like the biggest thing I see getting in the way of people reaching their goals is just a lack of planning when it really does only take about an hour to sit down, you know, once, once a week and just write out, okay, these are my lunches. These are my dinners. These are my snacks and do like the grocery shopping. And then that sets you up for the entire week, no matter if you're trying to gain weight, lose weight, you know, improve your health. It works for every kind of goal.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'd even argue that it wouldn't even take an hour in some cases. Like yeah, I feel like that's can, like
1: a stretch. Like yeah. that's like if you're like trying to be really um, pedantic about it, finding new recipes, yeah. keeping it inventive which I feel like is worth it to a certain extent. So you're not repeating the same meals all the time. Yeah. Um, a tip that I really like to give my clients as well is like as part of that meal planning, you can do ordering online with your groceries and that just saves you a ton of time and having to go to the grocery store, particularly if they're delivered. Um, so I just feel like this meal, like just finding a meal planning strategy that works for you can just go at like a thousand miles.
0: For sure. My, my next tip is check your vitamin D levels. This is more more applicable in Australia where we can really easily check our vitamin D levels. We can see a GP. If they bulk bill, we can get a free blood test. We don't have to pay anything. We just get a test and we can check our vitamin D levels. Um, a large percentage of people, I think the classic stat that gets thrown around is 30% of people are vitamin D deficient. I'm not 100% sure how closely that applies in Australia. But another thing to add on to that though is that even if you're not deficient if you were just on the low end of the healthy range it is still a suboptimal amount of vitamin d if you increase that level whether it's through sun exposure or whether it's through supplementation to the higher end of that range it is pretty much like a miracle supplement like i don't want to overhype it but like it helps with pretty much everything um we're going to talk about this at like other stages but like Even IBS, like 80% of people with IBS have um, low vitamin D or like lower levels of vitamin D. Mental health conditions, anxiety and depression, there's a really strong link there. Um, The obvious stuff in terms of bone strength or bone mineral density and everything like that, balance. And even in people like elderly populations, like muscle strength, if they supplement vitamin D, they get stronger. Like I'm not going to go out there and be like, all the powerlifters we work with, if they're low vitamin D, this is going to add 10 kilos to bench. Like I'm not going to make that claim, but like... It's enough that it's like, if you get a test that's free and there's no downside from supplementing, it's such an easy win. So like, if you're going to the doctor anyway, like I might not, unless you're suspicious of having low vitamin D, I probably wouldn't go out of my way to go to a doctor to specifically get this. But if you're going for something else, there's no harm in just like adding this on basically.
1: So tip number four is going to be the concept of eating more plants. Um, So obviously, I'm vegan, but I'm not talking about eating more plants in like a vegan or vegetarian bias way. I'm talking about just having a diet that is really focused around plant-based foods with a small amount of animal products. So making sure we're getting enough whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables, you know, all those kind of core food groups that aren't just kind of meat and dairy. So there is a lot of research to suggest that people that do have an adequate or high intake of these plant-based foods typically are less likely to be overweight, less likely to develop chronic diseases, things like cancers in some cases, um, and generally have better gut health. So for a lot of like the population in Australia, we just don't eat enough plant-based foods. So I find even the people coming into clinic and going, oh yeah, I'm great with my veggie intake, We actually sit down and assess that, it's like they may be just hitting the minimum or like even just below it. So, I think our idea of like how much plant based food we should be eating versus the actual reality of when we get good health outcomes is very different.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's one of those ones that, like, once again, a stat, it's somewhere along the lines like it's a debatable stat, but like 6% of Australians eating enough fruits and vegetables yeah I think it's even as low as four percent when you combine it I don't know it's like it's a very low percentage like it's under 10 percent that's all that we really need to go on with that and it's kind of like what percentage of Australians are vegan and vegetarian (laughs) like they're surely making up a large portion of that statistic which therefore means if you're an omnivore there's a very 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 low chance you're getting enough vegetables to start off with and probably fruit I think it's about 50% of Australians eat enough fruit
1: fruit is not as bad as vegetables when it comes to the stats yeah yeah 100%
0: and I completely agree like increasing that and it's it's funny because I think about this on Instagram heaps because like people like jump onto my posts about paddle pops and stuff like that and like hear what they want to hear but like it's a very boring message if I'm like eat more vegetables it's
1: not a fun message and it's like it's not nuanced in any way and I feel like people do enjoy when things are I don't know interesting and we've been hearing eat more fruits and vegetables since we were kids so that's just not an interesting message yet mm, barely any of us any of us are actually doing that in practice and that's just looking at fruits and vegetables like I like the amount of people that I know that can cook well with legumes is very small, especially if we're looking outside of like vegans and vegetarians, when we know legumes have such a great health benefit for us, but no one's eating them. Like people eat, sure, baked beans on toast, but how many people are putting like chickpeas in curries? And it's just rare to see that, or like mixing lentils in their spag bol. And I I think it's one of those things where it can be a really easy win for long-term health outcomes, but we're just not getting these basics.
0: Yeah, and jumping onto that as well, something like I really want anybody who's listening this, to this actually to think through. If you've ever been attracted to any abnormal dietary approach, like something apart from the norm because you're questioning whether the normal approach is going to give you the results that you want but you haven't eaten enough vegetables, That it's food for thought. Like It's just like yeah. that's probably the easy win before you should start questioning being like, is my body different? Like, am I the outlier when you haven't tried one of the most obvious things we've got available to us?
1: Yeah, one of the most simple simple strategies you can try is increasing your plant-based foods from like a weight loss appetite management perspective. So if you haven't tried it, it's very much well worth it.
0: 100%. Yeah. My, my next tip is based on cutlery advice. This is something everybody's heard, but I'm going to put it in the underrated advice kind of basket because it's so boring that's underrated. And it's basically that the way I think about it is if somebody's trying to gain size and they struggle to gain size and they're having cereal as an example, it makes sense to use a larger bowl the chances of you going back for seconds when it comes to cereal or something like that, pretty slim. Same thing with like dinners and stuff like that, larger plates, whatever it is, you're more likely to eat more. Vice versa, if you're trying to eat less food, using smaller bowls, smaller plates, whatever. Like it's so, so boring, but like, have you actually tried it? Like if you've never tried it, like, it is worth trying, and it does seem to make a difference from everybody I've ever worked with. Like, most people seem to find it. Same thing with, um, as a different example, with bariatric surgery. People who've had bariatric surgery often really benefit from getting a bariatric plate where it's basically got everything portioned out for them, like what the size of everything should be. You could tell somebody that and encourage them to do that, but actually having the cutlery that matches the goal makes it so, so, so much easier. Um, what about your next tip?
1: So I feel like I'm seeing a bit of a theme in that sometimes the, the boring advice can be the most helpful, but also the most underrated. So the next one is eating mindfully. Um, I'm sure this is one we've all heard at some point, um, whether it's from, from like a, a weight management perspective or just like a weight loss perspective. We've all heard that taking time to eat your meal without distractions, being focused on What's on your plate and what you're doing can make a huge difference to, to many things. So firstly, it can be just managing your hunger and satiety cues. So if you're taking the time to eat slowly, so say it takes you half an hour to eat a complete meal as opposed to previously it took you 10 minutes, perhaps you're you're going to be more in touch with your, by the time you get full, you're going to know that you're full as opposed to scoffing something down within 10 minutes and then having those cues come afterwards when you've already overeaten. So it can really help from, from that perspective. But I find the, where I use this advice the most in practice can also be from like a gut perspective mm. in that when you slow down and you actually chew your food well, that yep. could be like the, the thing that gets rid of your bloating. Cause I don't know about you, but I have a lot of clients come into, to clinic and bloating is like their number one concern. And I would say a good majority of the time eating mindfully and chewing well solves a good portion of that. So I'd say if you haven't tried it from the perspective of eat, like managing your appetite or from the perspective of reducing bloating, then it's worth a go there.
0: 100% agreed with all of that. Yeah, it's pretty clear cut. It's boring. It's hard to do, but it's, <laughs> it is super, super helpful. And like this there's two things that I, I want to add on to that in terms of like, for me from like the weight management and stuff like that perspective, like it, it if you whiffed out a pyramid of like priorities for like how to get lean or whatever, how to like all these kind of things, it's not really on there. Like it's very, it's very low priority, but like, it's still, still matters. But like, that's how I think about, it. I think of it as being low priority, but there's one study like to make this a little bit more interesting that really shaped my views on it. So there's a study, um, Coming out of Stanford University, Dr. Christopher Gardner ran it. He had 600 participants in it, so it's one of the largest nutrition studies that's really ever been done as a randomized control trial. So it was a randomized control trial, not like an observational one. And basically they put people into low-fat or low-carb groups and they basically said, like, go as low as you can sustainably manage for whatever macronutrient, whether it's carbs or whether it's fat, for the entire year. Just do as low as you can. Don't focus on anything else outside of Mindful eating mm-hmm. and good quality foods. Like the low fat group couldn't just go around having like a bunch of soft drink or something like that because it's it's low fat. Yeah. <laughs> like they had to actually still try and have nutrient rich um whole foods. And there was some people who didn't lose any weight. There was other people who lost as much as 30, 30 kilos. The average weight loss at the end of the study, I believe, was about five kilos because it's like a free living study. They could do whatever they want. And in the exit interviews, they asked them a whole bunch of questions. And the thing that shook me is because often people get attached to diets. Often people, if, they, if somebody loses 30 kilos doing a low-carb diet or whatever, I assume most people are going to jump onto that and be like, oh, it's because they cut out carbs. I've never tried that before. In this study, every single one of them pretty much who had lost 20-plus kilos credited mindful eating.
1: That's interesting.
0: They were, they were basically just like, I used to eat in front of the TV and now I sit down at a table with my family. I used to eat on the run and now every meal I have, like I actually focus on the meal and I eat slower and all those, all those little things you just talked about. But like, I want to add that in there cause I'm like me, I find it boring. But the fact that so many people who found success in that particular study with such a large sample size, almost every single one of them came to that conclusion It's interesting for me. It's like, it's worth keeping an eye on.
1: It's a little bit like talking about meditation and anxiety. Yeah. So a lot of people, myself included, who do suffer from, you know, some sort of anxiety. We know that meditation can be really helpful, but because it's boring, we don't do it. And I think, I think this falls into that category.
0: Yeah, for sure. So my next one, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to explain this succinctly. I'm stealing it from a guy named Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization. And he calls it the hedonic staircase principle. And basically, I think it's an underrated way of thinking about food. So basically the concept is at the top of the staircase, you've got really nice tasting food and there's a lot of variety. At the bottom of the staircase, you've got really bland food and there's not much variety. a question for you, Leah, to like set the scene. If you were trying to gain as much weight as you could over the next eight weeks, which end of the staircase would you want most of your food coming from?
1: I'd want variety.
0: You'd want variety. Totally. You'd want your food to taste good. It makes it easier to eat more food. It's a no-brainer. When people come to see us looking to lose weight and if they're asking for a meal plan, one of the most common things I see is people asking, hey, can I have variety so I don't get bored? And can it taste good so it's easy for me to stick to? And that makes a lot of sense. I see that. And this isn't a black and white kind of way of looking at things. But something that Mike Isretel said that really sunk in for me is he, he was talking about bodybuilders going through competition prep. And they're starving. They want food all the time. They're at a stage that chicken, broccoli, brown rice probably tastes appealing. They're that hungry. And he's like, if you're in that state and you were trying to get stage lean, if you were trying to add in foods that tasted nice it makes it harder to eat less calories. Like if you're working backwards from the calorie restriction to start off with, it makes it harder to stick to if your food tastes really nice because it makes you want to overeat. Um, The whole point of this is not being like, hey, pick one end of the spectrum or whatever and go really extreme with it. It's just being like, if you're struggling to gain size, Maybe it makes sense for your food to taste better. Maybe it makes sense for there to be more variety. Like imagine a professional chef cooking every meal for you. It'd make it so much easier to gain weight. Vice versa, if you're looking to get lean, I don't know, I'm a big fan of variety from a nutrition perspective. Something I see amongst clients before they start working with me, if they'd already lost a decent amount of weight, is a lot of them are very routine focused and a lot of them have the same stuff over and over and over and over and over. To the point that it annoys me, to the point that I'm like, there's not enough variety here. But it is food for thought that, it's easier to get leaner when your food tastes less appealing and there's less variety. So it's like thinking about in terms of spectrums, in terms of when you're on higher calories, maybe go a little bit higher up the staircase. When you're on lower calories, maybe go a little bit lower down the staircase.
1: Totally, and I think that something that comes to mind, like recently that happened, is I had a client who, who often had these really. Tasty foods, but was able to hold back and have a very small portion of it. So, like they'd order a Meat Lovers pizza and have two slices and yeah. not finish the whole pizza. But that is such an yeah, outlier; it it's not out even funny. Like that's different. Totally. Yeah,
0: I, I've had one. There's one elderly client in my first year of being a dietitian who'd have two squares of chocolate a night and stop there. And I was like, what a monster! <laughs>
1: like, that's insane! Like, yeah. you can't
0: <laughs> like these things are rare.
1: <laughs> yeah, if it's not portioned out and it's really tasty and you're hungry chances are you're going to go back for more. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, so our last tip of the day is again, a very simple one, but taking a food first approach to nutrition. So a lot of the time I, I do see people kind of walking into clinic with their bag full. Cause I ask everyone to bring in everything they're taking, like in terms of vitamins and supplements. Um, and they'll walk in with, with this huge bag of like miscellaneous supplements. Um, because they're very health focused and they're taking all these supplements, but they're not doing the basic things when it comes to their actual diet. So from a a lot of dietitians feel that, you know, these supplements should be that they should supplement an already well-balanced diet and you should only be taking what you need. Um, But in practice, it is easier to to take a pill than it is to actually have any kind of behavior change or, you know, change what you're doing with your nutrition. Um, so a lot of people do tend to take this route of supplement first, diet later. Um, and it is something I see all the time. Um, times that it does make sense is if you do have a diagnosed deficiency, so something like vitamin D deficiency. Yeah, it makes sense to take a supplement. Um, or something that you are chronically low in, again, like if you don't get enough sun and you don't eat a lot of vitamin D-rich foods, it then makes sense to supplement with that. But I see a lot of people taking things like vitamin C, where we know you can get enough vitamin C by just meeting your basic fruit and vegetable intake every day. Um, And most of the people don't need a supplement on top of that, yet they've taken that route instead of just the food-first approach. So in general, I would just say before you... Go and purchase a supplement, really think, you know, what can I do from a nutrition and diet perspective that could fill this gap before I go out and do that?
0: Yeah, completely agree. Like I wouldn't change anything with that. I'm very much big on doing everything you can through food within reason and then just chucking stuff in on top based on a specific need. And I think the best example of this that comes to my mind is creatine. As in, you can get creatine through food, you just probably have to have a lot of red meat. Like you'd probably have to have an excessive amount of red meat by a lot of people's standards, not everybody's standards, but like you'd have to have so much that's not really practical. You can have vitamin C example. um, What is like one orange is like over hundred percent of the RDI already. So it's like, it's an easy one to get. Whereas like creatine, as I just said, you'd have to go so far out of your way to achieve it that it makes sense to supplement that. But like when you go through this process and if you end up with an overall pretty good quality diet within reason, there's not that many supplements left on top of that that you probably need to add yeah
1: like a healthy person shouldn't need too many supplements if they can optimize their diet even if it's not a hundred percent optimal i feel like there's not many supplements you should be taking anyway like an example in practice would be for vegans we need b12 that's something that just makes sense we can't get it through food um but perhaps a greens powder is unnecessary
0: yeah all right well that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode thank you for listening and hopefully you all enjoyed it